Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 here in just a moment. Um, we're continuing a series in Acts 8 through 12. Um, if you're visiting with us every year, there's a just a section of the early part of the year that I try to dedicate now to teaching sections of the book of Acts. Uh, in tw- at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, we looked at the first two chapters of Acts, just how uh, the church was first established and what Jesus did um, in the initial aspects of, of the book of Acts and how um, everything started with the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Uh, 2022, uh, at the early part of the year, we looked at chapters 3 through 7 with the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. And now we're looking at 8 through 12, which gets to the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. This section of the book of Acts is filled with a lot of personal examples. A lot of uh, people's names are given, and there's a lot of emphasis on individuals and their conversions. So in chapter 8, we saw Simon in Samaria, and then we saw the Ethiopian eunuch, who was taught by Philip. And then in chapter 9, now we have the conversion of Saul, who later would become known as Paul, the apostle, who would, wrote, who would write the majority of the letters to the New Testament churches. Um, I want to say something really quick uh, about kind of a change I've made to the board. So I've tried to incorporate some Spanish, Espanol, uh, on the board. Uh, I'm very thankful to God for internet translators. I don't speak Spanish, uh, but Miguel here has been visiting with us for a couple weeks. And so um, I don't speak Spanish, so I can't do a bilingual lesson necessarily, but I've tried to um, at least be helpful with putting things on the board in Spanish as well. Um, and I do want to say something to Miguel um, in a Spanish I've written down here, uh, just with the nature of, of all of that. Miguel, nos alegramos uh, muchos de que estés aquí. Te recibimos con los brazos abiertos y queremos hacer todo lo posible para ser una bendición para ti uh, y tu relación con Dios. Tendré algunas a traducciones al español el pizarra para ayudar con el seguimiento, pero el sermón se impartirá en su totalidad de Hechos capítulo 9, versículos 1 a 31, pero el español puede, puede a no ser perfecto porque use un traductor en internet. So I was telling Miguel that I've got some translations here on the board, but they might be imperfect because I use the internet. Uh, so I want to start with the first two verses here, and um, we'll also read the verses I have on the board to kind of introduce the story of how Saul uh, was converted from who he was as an aggressive persecutor of the church to who would be one of the hardest working disciples to spread the gospel all over the world in the first century. So Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 and 2. Capitolo 9, versículo 1 y 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So I just kind of look at verse 1. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You know, sometimes if something is so much a part of who a person is, you could say it's as easy to them as breathing. 
The fact that it says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, it's like Saul was so consumed with his embittered hatred against Christians that it had become the person he was entirely. It came to him naturally. Back in Acts chapter 8, verse 3 here on the board, it says Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. You know, sometimes something that can be really good to do um, is to go house to house uh, evangelizing, knocking on people's doors, trying to meet people. But Saul was the kind of person where he had, uh, you know, he had a habit of going house to house. And you imagine him knocking on your door and what Saul is looking for is Christians. And imagine if you're a husband whose wife is a Christian, you know, and as a husband, you're not converted yet. You know, you're still a Jew. You're not quite convinced, but she's been living out her faith. And Saul comes in and says, hey, I've heard your wife is a Christian and I need to see her right now. And you imagine Saul literally dragging off not just men, but women to put them in prison. As Saul later, uh, later as Paul, reflects on this when he's actually put on trial for preaching the gospel, this is something that Paul reflects on in Acts 26. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they, and notice says they, which implies he was present at more stonings than just Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. But uh, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often, note this, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. You know, the way that the law was set up is kind of brilliant in kind of a visceral way where if, if you did not believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, lawfully, what does that mean Christians are as Jews? If you don't believe Jesus is risen from the dead, you know, he was just a blasphemer, people who worship Jesus claiming he is the Son of God, lawfully, what ought to be done to them? They need to be stoned to death, right? So the way this would be set up is God, in a sense, in the law, built in, Great persecution that would be given against Christians if you would refuse to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And I want you to not underestimate Saul's pride. You know, in chapter 7, obviously, he's present for the stoning of Stephen. Where do you think he was before that? You think he was in some other part of the world, far away from anything about Jesus? And when Stephen was stoned, that was like his first exposure of anything to do with Jesus? Personally, I find that extremely hard to believe, and it seems like it would be implied, the fact that he was a Pharisee and something kind of subtle, he cast his vote against Christians. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. He said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees in Philippians chapter 3. The fact that he cast his vote and his vote mattered seems to imply he had a presence on the governmental council involved in the Jewish people. So it's very likely Paul may have even seen Jesus with his own eyes when Jesus had been teaching in Jerusalem or was present in festival days. It's very likely he heard Jesus with his own ears when Jesus had been in Jerusalem. Do not underestimate Saul's pride. I think a mistake that is often made is a popular belief that Saul went from just a really good Jew who's just a little, you know, misguided, and what Jesus did is he took him from a really good, really zealous Jew, and he just 
transitioned that zeal to making him an even better Christian now. Paul never reflects on his conversion that way. He never reflects on his past as a Jew as, you know, I was, you know, really good as a Jew, and thank God God helped me know the truth so I could serve him even better. Paul would call himself later in 1 Timothy the chief of all sinners, right? So I think we need to not make the mistake of underestimating Saul's pride, his competitiveness, that he may have been zealous for the law, but it certainly was not motivated by the right kind of condition of heart. Jesus in John 10 said, my sheep hear my voice. If Paul had humility at this point in his life, if he had an appreciation for forgiveness, for the love of God, if he really knew who God was, was Stephen's sermon not persuasive to that end? Was Stephen stoning when Stephen called out to the Lord and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them? Was that not persuasive? What did he do after that? He began a focused, incredible persecution against the church. And this is something that he did against Christian after Christian after Christian with unrelenting, fierce force. Do not underestimate Saul's pride. We will get more out of the lesson and more out of Saul's example if we see him as someone who appeared by every account to be absolutely unreachable. So he says he went to foreign cities and he's on his way to Damascus and kind of emphasizing again how relentless Saul was and how determined he was to put all of this to an end. And by the way, just something that may help with the competitiveness of all this, I think it seems implied by Saul himself. Well, I'll just start using the name Paul, okay? So Paul later, he would reflect on his time before his conversion that he was achieving higher and higher rank in the Pharisaical system among the Jews, right? What a shame that he's living in a time receiving so much prestige. Along comes Jesus and just puts all of that achievement to nothing. As it seems like everything you're working for, everything you've been fighting for, all of this training you've been going through is being endangered by this man, Jesus of Nazareth. What a shame. So he goes to Damascus 150 miles from Jerusalem. We have not read anybody going that far from Jerusalem yet. We'll see Ananias is in Damascus, and Saul's obviously going there because there are Christians there. But so far, at least, nobody's made a trip that we've read of that far. So I think it, it just shows the kind of focused zeal that, that Saul has going so far northeast away from Jerusalem, again, to seemingly put it all to an end. So let's talk about the conversion of Saul. I'll structure this lesson just like last week where we talk through the events and then at the end of the lesson, we'll kind of look back and make more personal applications from the events. So we're going to read verses 3 through 9. Uh, versículos uh, tres through nueve uh, y nueve. Um, and we'll kind of start with this idea that Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians there, and then Jesus appeared to him in a bright light. It's actually Acts 26, where uh, Paul would say it was a light brighter than the sun even. So it's not just like a bright flash, but I mean, it is an incomprehensibly bright light that he saw. Verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
If you have a new King James or King James that will insert, why are you kicking against the goads? Something in chapter 26, Paul would say, Jesus said here, verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. So something again to emphasize here, and that I think is so critical to the purpose of Saul's conversion. In 1 Timothy, he would reflect on the fact that the nature of his conversion and how unreachable he seemed to be was meant to be an example to all who would believe in the Lord from that time forward. So there's something about Saul's conversion that we aren't to see Paul as this irrelatable superhero, you know, and Jesus did appear to him directly. And from this day forward, I mean, he just was full throttle. And so again, I want to caution us, don't make this mistake of seeing Saul at a distance. God did these things so that we could be relating to him, not withdrawing from his example. It's much like Jesus, where we can look at Jesus and think, well, he's the son of God. He never sinned. I don't know how I can relate to him. Whereas quite the contrary, Jesus is meant to be a model for us that we relate to even in our sin and temptation. Similarly, Saul. But in Saul, Jesus reached the unreachable and he broke the unbreakable. Jesus can reach people that we can't. I want you to think about this. Every Christian Saul murdered. And notice it says in verse 1, he was breathing threats and murder. When, when Saul put Christians to death, that was murder. Was everyone's life wasted with Saul? Because Saul didn't repent immediately, was Stephen's life wasted? Was Stephen's sermon wasted on Saul? You know, a way that maybe I can help illustrate this. You know, when Eva and I have talked, well, when I've talked to Eva about my past, you know, I repented when I was 21 from having gone off the deep end many years uh, into sin and uh, just licentious living. And I told Eva many times that, you know, there were so many opportunities that God gave me to repent where I was convicted and I just completely failed to act on those convictions. Even times where I would act on, act on that in a very minor way, I would ask for forgiveness, be like, I need to make my life right. Pretty much immediately, I would just dive right back head first and get worse, um, back head first into sin and get worse than I was before. Eva said something to me that really encouraged me that I have not forgotten. She said, those opportunities were not wasted. They may have been little steps along the way, for God to eventually redeem those moments that you felt were lost. Do you think Saul would have seen it that way as he was led by the hand for three days blind and could see nothing? That he would look back on all those moments and not one moment was wasted. Being exposed to Christians enduring death and persecution or hearing sermons preached or seeing forgiveness in action. You know, what I love about this example is God does the heavy lifting. You know, there are people that we need to teach very relentlessly. We have to sit down with them, have many Bible studies, ask many questions, maybe say things strongly at times. But then there's other people where they've, they've read the Bible. They've been exposed to Jesus. They're aware of him. And by the time you meet them, they are already so heartbroken and so convicted, they only need to be told what they need to, be do, what they need to do to be saved. You know, evangelism is very diverse. And this is a story that gives me so much encouragement because, as I've said many times, all of us only have so much time in a day. There are so many people who are lost in Savannah 
And whatever community you are from, if you're visiting with us, not one person has enough time to save everybody, right? God can reach people that it seems like we just can't reach. God can work within people's consciences and hearts in just the fact that they're exposed to Jesus, even in some broad level where in our community, people know about Jesus. They know he died. They know he died for forgiveness to reconcile us with God, right? So God can reach people we can't reach, even if that doesn't come in the form like it did for Saul of a direct, bright appearance like this. Um, What do you think Paul was doing in the three days where he didn't eat or drink. You know, something that's kind of difficult sometimes is letting reality sink in and even sink in for a person. You know, this is kind of difficult to quantify or deal with in each person, but there are times where someone, just in knowing them, may be very eager, for instance, to get baptized, but sometimes you may need to emphasize maybe you need to let things sink in a little bit more and really think more about what this really is, right? God took the risk of letting three days pass by with no relief. I'm not saying we should stop people from being baptized or anything like that, but I do think there is a value of really understanding the problem of our sin And the value of what needs to be done to reconcile us to Jesus, right? So God allowed there to be three days of terror. I imagine Saul was saying many sorries. I imagine he was thinking about how worthy he was to be punished and condemned. And there were three days where there was no relief from that anguish. And yet Saul's conviction shows the value of that prolonged time he was left without release. Again, it's really hard to navigate when you're working with people, but again, it's just, it's worth considering for us as well as in communicating with others. The gravity of sin needs to be understood, right? And then there's Ananias. So 10 through uh, 19, I'm going to call it 19a because there's a weird verse split where it says he took food and was strengthened and then it kind of moves on at the end of verse 19. So we'll read 10 through 19a. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I or here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus, man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So just kind of something in the background here, um, as a theme in the book of Acts, remember God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, angels, you know, they communicate with people, but they never do the teaching. The teaching is always done by people, right? So Jesus says the Lord spoke to Ananias. 
but Jesus was pointing Saul to Ananias to be taught by Ananias what he should do. Jesus did not tell Saul what he needed to do besides going to a person, hearing what that person had to say about what to do, right? Ananias' understanding of the gospel's power was broadened. I imagine Ananias, especially being all the way in Damascus, was a very dedicated disciple of Jesus. Inherently, being a disciple of Jesus, what kind of understanding do you think he would have had of forgiveness? The reach of the gospel. That forgiveness is for everybody, especially for the most sinful people. And yet, Saul was so viewed as unreachable that Jesus himself talking to Ananias saying, go talk to Saul, Ananias says, do you know this guy? <laughs> like, really, Saul? I know about this guy. Can you imagine nearly, I don't think he's like directly disagreeing, but saying like, really? Can you imagine saying these things to Jesus? You say like, I hear you, but I'm not sure you know about this man like I do, right? So again, we have these examples, just like what we talked about with Samaria, where it's incredible, where God, he could just directly say the gospel is for everybody. Forgiveness is for everyone. No one's off limits. But I think that would have so much less power to persuade us and change our perspective as much as seeing these illustrations in these examples. You know, the reason why I think we have such an inundated consciousness that the gospel is for everybody and really understanding the reality of that, which I think we do understand the reality of that, but we, we owe that to the fact that there are men and women who had to really struggle with that reality and we read about that struggle and we learn from that struggle. And so the reality is really comprehending how far the gospel really could go was actually a very difficult thing. In the next chapter, Peter, who was involved in going to Samaria, is going to go to Cornelius even after receiving a vision of Peter, arise, kill and eat what I've called holy, no longer call holy, unholy, he still goes into Cornelius' house and is like, why am I here, right? So again, how far the gospel can go, when we really attempt to reach and talk to people, it will challenge the reality of what we really understand about the power of the gospel. Ananias was a proper devoted disciple and still had a broadened and pushed understanding through his interactions with Saul. And I want you to note this as well. You know, if, if you happen to be talking to someone uh, about salvation and baptism, you know, they, they may bring up Saul. You know, I've studied Acts with many people, and uh, this is something that is important to point out. And there's a consistency in Acts that's worth pointing out. When was Saul saved? I want you to think, when Jesus appeared to Saul, did Saul know that Jesus was Lord? And if you look in verse uh, 11, Saul was even praying. But was he saved knowing Jesus was Lord and even praying in that three-day period? No, in verse 18, he took food and was strengthened after he was baptized. In Acts 22.16, Paul gives this greater light. He recounts that Ananias specifically said, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized washing away, wash, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul sinned, were not washed away, knowing Jesus was Lord, even praying knowing Jesus was Lord. And I imagine he was praying for forgiveness. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
he was not saved until he got up and was baptized. So although there were special circumstances, right? This is the last time, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, it's the last time Jesus would ever directly appear to someone. It's the last time. So even though that was very special, how Paul received the forgiveness of his sins was not special. It was the same as it was for any other Christian in the book of Acts. He needed to hear, he needed to believe, he needed to confess, he needed to repent, and he needed to be baptized for the remission of his sins, right? Something worth noting is something also very unusual in verse 18. We don't really read about this anywhere else. What happened before he was baptized? Something like scales, like peeled off of his eyes. And I think it's the idea of Saul was so blind, not just the three days, right? But it's almost like his eyes were circumcised and he could really see now. In Acts 26, verses 16 through 20, Paul recounts that Jesus also said, something not recorded here, that he would go to the Jews and the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. The gospel is a message to open the eyes of the blind. Anyone who does not dedicate their life to Jesus is completely blind. And we have light. We have light because of the gospel. Um, Now, 19b through the end of our section, verse 31, what we see is the, the nature of Saul's conversion to Jesus is evident in the radical changes we see in him from this point forward here, and especially emphasized in the latter portion of this text. So 19b, Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night and they might, that, so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. By the way, really quick note, in Galatians chapter 1, something also that's not said here in the narrative Based on Galatians 1, there's a three-year period that elapses between 25 and 26. The reason why that's helpful to to note is when Paul gets back to Jerusalem, they're still scared of him, and his reputation has not gone away through that elapse of time. Goes from Damascus, leaves south, comes back to Jerusalem years later. Verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. The impression you get in the book of Acts, the gospel and the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force. Every obstacle that is being put in the way of the movement of Jesus' kingdom is being completely abolished. 
In chapter 12, Herod is going to put Peter in prison after having James beheaded. An angel opens the jail cell. Peter gets out and continues on with his ministry. In the book of Acts, the gospel is an unstoppable force. There is no earthly force that can get in the way. Many rulers, many groups have tried to oppose the gospel, put an end to it. And yet, even through that persecution, just like in Acts, it thrives and grows and continues on. So what kind of changes do we see in Saul? And we'll return back to these in the personal applications. It's evident in the fact that he began boldly proclaiming Jesus. You know, if you look at verse 20, what was Saul emphasizing? Not that, you know, maybe Jesus will also appear to you. He was proving in the synagogues, he is the son of God. Verse 22, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You know, if we want to confront people with Jesus, then we need to be talking to people about the Lord. Look back at chapter 8. This is something we've consistently, consistently see. Chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. In the same chapter, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Chapter 9, Jesus appears to Saul. Even though it's directly, it's the principle, Jesus was confronting people. And when Saul came to know Jesus in verse 20, again, he is emphasizing this Jesus is the son of God. He is the Christ. An evidence of Saul's conversion is his passion to share the gospel with others and confront people with the reality of Jesus. Another aspect of his conversion that we see that proves just the genuineness, the reality of his conversion. Look in ver at the end of verse 19. What did he do with the disciples at Damascus who he had gone there to imprison and put to death? He began associating with them. When he went to Jerusalem, what did he try to do? In verse 26, he tried to associate with the disciples. The initiative that Paul had to associate with the disciples, how relentless that was for him to seek that fellowship and work with like-minded believers, the value he placed on that fellowship is a proof of the genuineness of his conversion. His willingness to suffer is also an evidence of the genuineness of his conversion. Look back at verse uh, 16. What if... When you were considering converting to Christ and being baptized, what if someone said this, I guarantee you, you will only suffer from this state forward, and that's going to be your life. How would you respond to that? Would you still be willing to convert to Jesus and live for him? Would you have any joy in that, or would that just be immediately discouraging and put you off? And I want you to think about this, just from your general knowledge of Paul's writings in the epistles, did he view his suffering as being punished for his past life? Like, was that God's way of saying, you know, you made others suffer, and now time for recompense, now you must suffer too? No. Paul saw it as a reality of living in fellowship with Jesus, and he embraced this reality, not only himself with joy, but letter after letter, he invites other Christians to share with him in the joy of suffering with Jesus and suffering for his cause. Evidence of Saul's genuineness is his willingness to endure persecution and suffering without growing weary or losing heart. And I love how Barnabas sticks up for Paul as well. That Paul's association with other Christians is close, that he allows others to be an encouragement to him, and he's in a position of need as well. 
uh, in terms of other people needing to help him, whereas as he was a Pharisee, I don't picture him as needing anyone's help to be stuck up for or to encourage him or any such thing at all. So his life was just completely turned upside down by the gospel. So let's think about some lessons and reflections here. How can we think about Saul's example personally? And I think number one, that our personal comprehension, and I know this is a mouthful and I thought about how to shorten it, but I just left it as a mouthful. Our personal comprehension of the magnitude of God's forgiveness in Christ is the key to a thriving zeal in the Lord, right? What we see in Saul is not just that he was convicted, but that through the letters written to Christians that this conviction was held and developed. Think about what would have convicted Saul, maybe more than a normal person. You know, he had opportunities to hear the gospel, he threw them away. He had opportunities to hear Christians, he killed them. He dragged off men and women and something just crazy. He's like a madman. It says he tried to force people to blaspheme. I mean, just just try to picture that. I imagine him yelling in people's ears, threatening to stone their family members if they won't denounce Jesus. And again, just imagine the madness of a scene like that. That's who Saul was. I want you to think about something, though. Even in Paul's deepest conviction, after Jesus appeared to him, for that three days, did Paul, even in that three days, understand just how great the debt of sin really is? Did he have a perfect, flawless comprehension of just how enormous the debt of sin is? I would still argue no. We really need to work on understanding our sin in view of God's grace. Luke chapter 7, what I have on the board, there's a woman in a Pharisee's house as Jesus is teaching and eating there. She comes up and interrupts the whole meal and she's at Jesus' feet. She says nothing. She cries, cries on his feet, anoints him with oil. It's very disruptive. The Pharisee says to himself, if this woman or if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus goes on to tell a little parable to this man. Uh, His name was Simon. He says, have you seen this woman? You know, that she anointed his feet while the Pharisee, whose house he was in, didn't wash his feet when he came in, anointed him with oil, etc., etc. What he goes on to say is, this woman whose sins are many have been forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves much little. And I don't think it's the idea that some people are kind of like different on the scale of sinner, but it's a matter of comprehension. That that woman understood something real about her sin. And what Jesus was saying is her love was motivated by understanding her sin in view of forgiveness. The reason why we may lack zeal when we lack zeal is not just that we need to be told to do something, but that we've lost comprehension of the reality of our sin and God's forgiveness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 on this note. Um, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles there. 2 Peter chapter 1. After Peter's been encouraging the reader to be completely diligent, to imply uh, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities, notice this, is blind or short-sighted, 
having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What does Peter say motivates us to be diligent and disciplined, to grow continuously and thrive in our faith? When we remember what God has done to purify us from our sins. Paul did not diminish his conviction over time. He grew in his conviction over time. God's word equips us to pursue a deeper conviction of really understanding what it really means to be forgiven. And so we need to just work on valuing that to be properly motivated. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 16 through 18. What I'd like to do is just kind of think about some natural extensions of repentance. You know, what does repentance really look like? What kind of path does it inevitably lead us down? And I would suggest that what we see in Saul is very consistent with what we see everywhere else in the New Testament. That repentance very naturally, when it's rooted in Christ, when it's directed to Christ, it leads us fundamentally to change our attitude towards suffering. Paul would write in Romans 8, verse 16, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Note this, if, if indeed, we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To live faithfully to God means suffering is inevitable. That may be the suffering of self-denial with temptation. It may be the suffering of social pressure. It may be the suffering of persecution, whatever. The reality is to serve and live for Jesus, suffering is inescapable. And repentance fundamentally leads us to have a changed attitude towards suffering. And so think about that. What's been your attitude towards suffering lately? And if your attitude has been in the right place towards suffering, that would be evident in the fact that you've been enduring suffering, even in this past week, right? So just consider that, that repentance is a natural extension or an attitude towards suffering like Paul is a natural extension of repentance. Romans 12.10, if you'll just turn a couple pages over. One of the other natural extensions of repentance, when it's focused on Christ, when it's rooted in Christ, you know, repentance leads us somewhere. Repentance isn't just saying sorry for sin, receiving forgiveness, and going on with your life. It is a commitment to surrender to the authority of Jesus from that day forward. So where does that lead? Romans 12.10, just as an example of what we see in Saul, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Saul's attitude towards people had changed radically after he was converted. Radically. The people he hated, he sought fellowship with, and he initiated fellowship with. I think one of the most important fruits of repentance that we see in the book of Acts, the New Testament letters, is fellowship and initiative in that fellowship with like-minded believers. And I want you to think about Paul again that he overcame obstacles in pursuing that fellowship. Can you imagine when they wouldn't receive him in Jerusalem and they were scared of him? could have thought, well, I thought Christians were supposed to be forgiving people, and here you are bringing up my past from years ago. Can't let that go. And yet, he still sought that fellowship with believers and didn't allow himself to be put off by misjudgments that were being made by Christians in Jerusalem. How can we think about this maybe a little more practically? 
initiate conversation and relationships with people that you haven't yet. You know, maybe think about a brother here or a sister here, maybe that you know the least. You know, what the gospel does for us is it trains us to not just wait to be approached by others, but to be the person to approach others and initiate growth in that relationship, right? And so what we see in Paul is he was initiating growth and fellowship. He was initiating a cooperative relationship with like-minded believers. And so don't just talk to people you usually talk to. Don't just initiate relationships with people who are easy to talk to. Talk to everyone. And if there's a person that you feel like you don't know very well, initiate conversation with them. Something that I try to do is every year I try to think about one person that I just want to get to know better. And I'll just try to remind myself through the year that, hey, I, I just I really want to get to know this person better. I want to encourage them more. And I try to pick someone that I feel like I really need to grow in my relationship with. And finally, um, just something simple is I believe Paul to be one of the greatest examples of an evidence for Jesus' resurrection. You know, even liberal scholars who don't believe the Bible can't deny that Paul was a real person who really lived in this time frame, who wrote the many letters we see in our Bibles. And even if there are scholars who will discredit certain books, there are many of Paul's letters that are universally credited as really being written by Paul, by all scholars universally, whether they have any belief in the Bible or not. How do you explain someone that goes from being such a hostile persecutor to the movement of Christianity to being its greatest propagator and writing the letters that he wrote about service, Christ-likeness, love, and humility, and patience. How does a person go from one to the other? And so I think Paul and his conversion is a great evidence that he saw Jesus and that Jesus' appearance to him is an evidence of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. You know, again, in this time frame, if Jesus had not lived or risen from the dead, it would have been something easily disproven historically. And yet, not only did it thrive, it thrived even among people like Saul, who had been doing everything they could to discredit it and to put it to a stop. Instead, Saul becomes one of its greatest advocates. I'll leave that with you uh, this morning. We'll talk more about Peter at the end of chapter 9. I really want to encourage you to think very seriously about the reality of the gospel. The gospel alone has power to convict us in ways that nothing else can. Saul was a blameless man by the standard of God's religious law. How do you convict someone who by the standard of a religious law is blameless? Jesus and the grace that is in Jesus can do that. And only the gospel has that power. The power of grace is not just that it makes us feel good. It's that it convicts us of this great distance between us and God. And the cause is our sin. And the only way for that bridge to be reconciled, the only way to be brought back into a working relationship with God is to see that Jesus' death, it had to happen because of my sin that I am responsible for. Conversions like Saul emphasize the kind of magnitude that our sin ought to have, the kind of impact the magnitude of our sin ought to have on our lives. And so I would just encourage you to consider the reality of these things and come forward with any needs that relate to it while we stand and sing.